This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss works that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Schreiber, and this is the How to Love It podcast. Today, we're going to start our two-part series on a Jewish sacred text known to those in the Christian tradition as the Book of Ecclesiastes, and for those of the Jewish tradition, known as Koheleth. Uh, the traditional scholarship, both Christian and Jewish, of the book suggests that it was written by Solomon, the son of David, whose uh, reign was from 970 to 931 BCE, you know, give or take a few years. <laughs> but uh, as we must assume with any piece of text this old, there is no consensus as to the dating of the book, um, if King Solomon wrote it, or even if he even lived. Well, true. And if you could ever find agreement on those points, which is no small thing, and in fact, an impossible thing, <laughs> but even if you could do it, it is still one of the most problematic books in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Koheleth, as the writer identifies himself in the book, says things that seem to contradict traditional religious beliefs. They even contradict themselves within the book. But actually, the book is full of what I would think of as apparent contradictions. They're definite, complicated tensions of life. And in many ways, Koheleth uh, sounds like Albert Camus. And in fact, parts of the book of Ecclesiastes have been compared to Camus' famous myth of Sisyphus. Absurdism, as Camus expresses it in his writings, and we've talked about that when we discussed The Stranger, can actually be seen dialoguing with the writer of Ecclesiastes. They agree in a lot of things when they talk about the contradictions that are inherent in being human. But if we get all past that, and if we accept that King Solomon lived as Scripture says he lived, and if we trace his reasonings in this complicated book, which I think we can do, we still have to wrestle with the idea that King Solomon, as a person, is one of the more problematic heroes to populate the pages of the Christian or Jewish canon. No question, he's a great political leader. He was a prophet during his lifetime. Men came by the thousands to listen to his wisdom. He built a great empire. 
Problematically, though, it didn't last past his lifetime as a direct consequence to the choices that he made in his personal life, not the professional one. His legacy was a kingdom that disintegrated immediately after his death. The Bible says his heart was not loyal to the Lord, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord to the point that God ripped, and I quote the Bible here, his vast kingdom from him and give it to, gives it to his servant. So there you go. As a hero, King Solomon gets mixed reviews. He's a contradiction. <laughs> well, there you go. You know, and, and yet um, his books on wisdom stand on their own merit, and they have for over 3,000 years. Um, there's the one he wrote on romance, Song of Solomon. There's another on practical life called Proverbs. Uh, and this third one that we're discussing, Ecclesiastes, uh, is a work of deep philosophy. Uh, just like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes is full of maxims, you know, or quotable lines that, that you could put on T-shirts and sell, and we probably should. <laughs> Yeah, we should. I'm pretty sure the copyright restrictions have expired over the last, you know, 5,000 years. I think years. so. Uh, his statements of truth, really, though, they resonate, as you would expect. It resonates with Christians and Jews and Muslims because he's an acknowledged prophet in each one of those traditions. Uh, but remarkably, his ideas also resonate with atheists and Buddhists and Hindus and, and others from a variety of worldviews. So... This episode and next, we will jump into Jewish wisdom literature and find the common ground made famous by Koheleth, as the writer of Ecclesiastes identifies himself in the text. So, Christy, who is Koheleth? <laughs> it amazes me, you know, just if we stop and think about it, that we're reading words written or, or perhaps spoken on this planet 3,000 years ago. I mean, that is a long time. And just the fact that writing from that long ago still exists, that feels magical to think about. Uh, how does writing that old exist? But it also begs certain questions, natural questions. For example, how do we know? How could we know who possibly wrote this? You know, ancient Jewish tradition says that Solomon wrote the book known as Koheleth during the last years of his life, and the book itself says that the author is a preacher who was the son of David and king in Jerusalem. And there's really only one person in human history that fits that very specific description. And yet. <laughs> so, you know, why does it seem like you're not sure who wrote the book? Because there are contradictions. Uh -oh. <laughs> a sense of theme. I know. I mean, you're going to hear that word over and over again when you talk about this book. There are good reasons, scholars wonder, if someone other than Solomon, hundreds, maybe hundreds of years later, used Solomon's name and his voice or point of view to pen the book. So uh, what would be an example of a reason? All right, well, right off the top, one reason is the language used in Ecclesiastes or Koheleth, as the Jewish tradition references it. The language, and when I say that, like the type of Hebrew, like English, Portuguese, Spanish, the type of Hebrew used in this writing dates to a much later period than other writings from the period of Solomon. So, for example, and this we understand this like this, if I compare writing from, that were written in 2022 to writing that was written in 1622, it would read differently, and everyone who understands English would immediately notice the difference. So, for example, we're saying here, if we're going to make another analogy, that we found a piece of writing and the author in the piece claims to be Thomas Jefferson, 
but the language is used and it sounds like somebody wrote it in 2022 and not the way people talked in 1776, that would be a problem in believing that Thomas Jefferson actually wrote that piece of writing. But isn't that what your students do quite often? Yes. So that's one problem. Uh, But that's not the only problem. Another problem is that the name Solomon, it's never used in the text. You know, the writer doesn't identify himself as Solomon. He identifies himself as Koheleth. So uh, why would Solomon not just say right out that that's who he is? Uh, Koheleth says, and this is another problem within the text itself. Koheleth says, Koheleth says, when I was king. Well, what does that mean? There was never a point in time that Solomon lived, you know, in retrospect, and he looked back and said, when I was king, he was king until he died. So you could understand that to be, if you're just reading the text, uh, you know, that a person is taking on this persona, maybe looking at life from Solomon's perspective, maybe beyond the grave, something along those lines. So you can see that, and those are just three that I just threw out there. There are other issues within the text and outside the text that make people um, disagree on whether there this was the author, even if there was a single author, that issue will will remain unresolved. I mean, we can't go back. <laughs> oh, you're not gonna you're not gonna resolve that for us. In uh-uh. <laughs> so, if Solomon didn't write the book, who did? Another good question. There aren't any candidates. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> you know, the idea scholars suggest that if it's not King Solomon himself, maybe that was a scribe or a religious figure that came later after the exile. You know, and they these words were written in the tradition of King Solomon. So, uh, what do you mean by in the tradition of Solomon? It means that nobody is disagreeing that the ideas in the book are attributed to him. Uh, perhaps assuming a persona, uh, there's several reasons to think about it. Perhaps these are things that Solomon was known to have said. Perhaps this was his understood perspective. I don't know. Al- along those lines, at the end of the day. You know, from our position in history, whether the writer is an aged Solomon or the writer is speaking for an aged Solomon, from our literary standpoint, it doesn't change how we discuss the text. It certainly doesn't change the arguments that he's making. This piece of writing is a piece of philosophy, but it's also a piece of rhetoric. Of course, I guess those two things always are. And the bottom line is to best understand the arguments We have to assume that the writer is speaking as King Solomon. Whether he wrote it or not, he's speaking as King Solomon as if he had lived the life of King Solomon. So Ecclesiastes is King Solomon's point of view, indisputably. We've talked about rhetoric a lot on the podcast because nonfiction and fiction writing of merit is almost always rhetorical. Uh, And what we mean by that is that it is really it's intentionally persuasive. But having said that, um, we've also always said many times that rhetoric was first developed by the Greeks sometime uh, in the 300s BCE. In this case, the numbers don't line up uh, because this text is going to predate the Greeks by centuries. And even if you are thinking that the writer came later than the actual King Solomon. So how's all that work? Interesting point. Good job paying attention. You know. Obviously, ancient Hebrews practiced rhetoric. I mean, everyone has always practiced rhetoric. But to your point about written rhetoric, amazingly enough, there is historical evidence that suggests that Hebrews, before the Greeks, theorized about rhetoric. Uh, by Let's just remember what that word means, if you're wondering. 
Rhetoric is the art of influencing people, persuading people, arousing feelings, changing people's minds. That is exactly what Koheleth is going to set out to do. And if we look to the Greeks for our understanding of rhetoric, which we almost always do, what we will see is that many of the strategies the Greeks teach us are actually also embedded in a very sophisticated way in this text. Starting from the beginning, we see them, or the writer Koheleth, developing the credibility of this implied author. And he's going to use specific details that focus on a specific intended audience as well. This is intentional. The arguments Koheleth make hinge almost entirely in understanding who King Solomon is or was and specifically what he's famous for. The Greek word for that, they call it ethos. The person of King Solomon, who he is, is at the heart of the argument he's making. In other words, this is a risk for Koheleth. It's a significant risk, but he's relying on the readers or the listeners, their trust and acceptance in King Solomon as this very unique and successful king in human history. Well, you know, truth be told, uh, that isn't as hard a sell as you might think. I mean, um, unlike many uh, Bible characters, for example, Jacob or even Jesus, um, King Solomon Son of David is a unifying person for all the monotheistic religions. And Christians, um, Jews, and Muslims all agree Solomon holds a unique place in the history um, of the Near East. All three monotheistic faiths agree that he is a prophet, he's a preacher, Kohelet. All three monotheistic faith traditions um, agree that he was the wisest man that ever lived. And that is quite a distinction because we uh, often think of um, the three monotheistic faiths in terms of what they actually disagree on. But truth be told, they actually do share a lot of common ground, especially with Solomon. True. And honestly, uh, it's his almost universal acceptance that drew my interest in in talking about him, especially now at the beginning of the new year. And if you're listening to this in real time, we are starting a new year. It's the time of year when we consider, you know, starting over in one way or another. Should we change courses? Should we take on a new adventure? Should we revisit or adjust an idea and an attitude that we've had this year? It's a good time to think, well, what would the wisest man on the planet have to say? Uh, And he's not just the wisest man on the planet. He has other qualities that spark our interest when we think about creating an action plan for a new year. He's not just the wisest. He's the richest. He's the most professionally successful. He's the most sexually successful man, if you want to look at it that way. If you're going to define that sort of success by a collection of wives and the size of one's harem. Mm, Well, there you go. I mean, uh, you don't want to touch that. Is there anything else that would define success? I mean, he's a he's a bona fide historical celebrity. And uh, of course, if you've never heard of King Solomon, uh, you may be wondering what you're telling me that uh, all three monotheistic religions agree there is one guy from 3,000 years ago that to this day, no one has ever matched him in wealth and wisdom and sex appeal. (laughs) I mean, it truly is an incredible claim. Um, And and Christy, it's worth stopping and taking a minute to explore the evidence that supports um, those claims as presented in sacred texts as well as in Near Eastern uh, mythological tradition. Oh, I completely agree. So, Gary, from what we know from the historical record, who is this man known as King Solomon to the Christian, Suleiman to the Muslim, Shlomo Hamelik to the Jew? (laughs) 
Well, again, uh, as in all things uh, that are old, there's going to be some disagreement. Uh, although I do think most scholars from any worldview do acknowledge that there was a real historical person who is the one referenced in the Torah or the Old Testament in the books of First Kings and Second Chronicles of the Bible. And uh, even though a lot of what we know about King Solomon does come from these Jewish sacred texts, I do want to say that those texts are not the only text or, or even the only sacred text that reference King Solomon. There are a lot of references to Solomon in the Quran. For example, uh, Surah 2179 specifically references God giving uh, Suleiman judgment and knowledge and uh, to subjecting the mountains and the birds to him. There are also many uh, Solomonic legends that are part of Near Eastern culture and Islamic culture that are not canonized in sacred text, but are still yet really well known and established in the Near East. Um, in the Islamic tradition specifically, there is a really rich popular oral narrative about King Solomon. Um, in the Islamic tradition, Suleiman is the commander of demons and jinn. He's the builder of the temple in Jerusalem, the possessor of a magnificent throne and a magical seal or, or signet ring. He's the uh, ruler of the wind and the subduer of the queen of Sheba. He knows the languages of birds. I mean, it's really interesting to read the stories of the prophet Suleiman's reign. A lot of it is magical, quite literally, you know, magical. But beyond the narratives, uh, there are all very interesting and even important ideas that can be cross-referenced between all three faiths. The reason I'm bringing this up, really, is to point out what a big deal... <laughs> The ancient king of Solomon was historically, I mean, the impact of this man was far reaching beyond the borders of ancient Israel. Um, you know, the poetry and the legends about him took on a popular mythic imagination in that part of the world uh, that must be respected regardless of your religious tradition. And I think you could say the tales of Solomon or Suleiman are quite literally, to quote Barney Stinson, legendary, which is probably... <laughs> Not wise to quote Barney Stinson. Legendary. He would agree with well, himself on that. <laughs> that's that's taking a risk. Oh well. well, you mentioned the Queen of Sheba showing up in the Quran. You know, she shows up in the biblical account of Solomon as well. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, King Solomon was a philosopher king, but unlike most prophets, the wisdom of Solomon was not meant only for Jewish people or people who believed in the Jewish God. In other words, Kohelis spoke from a Jewish point of view, and his wisdom came from the Jewish God. But his goal was not to call people to Judaism or even to call Jews to live better Jewish lives. His wisdom was applicable to any faith tradition and was very much about how to live a better life here on earth. In fact, unless you were a Jew, if you were listening to Solomon in the days of Solomon, you were not a monotheistic person. Nobody at that point in history was monotheistic, except the Jews. The goal of Koheleth is to give practical advice for life, as he says, under the sun. That's how he puts it, and the records suggest people came from everywhere, from all over the world. The Bible says from every nation of the world to hear it. Let's read what the biblical text says about our favorite ancient queen, the Queen of Sheba and her visit. I like her. <laughs> Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. 
So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers, and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw them with my own eyes. And indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I had heard. And so there you go. If we take the words of the Islamic tradition, the word of Queen of Sheba, and add that to other very specific statements in the Bible, we find that all the written records from all known sources agree in establishing King Solomon as the wisest man who has ever lived and predictably will ever live. But that's just one thing. We're also claiming he's the richest, the most successful professionally, the most sexually accomplished. <laughs> I know, it's kind of an odd thing to say. Uh, yes, he's not just famous for being wise. Um, he's also famous for being rich. Um, if you Google the top 10 richest men to ever live on planet Earth and how much they were worth... His name is at the top of the list. In fact, um, if uh, wealth.com is to be believed, <laughs> King Solomon's net worth is estimated to have been about $2.1 trillion. And that's just his cash, or rather gold. That wasn't even his patrimony or land. Now, uh, wealth.com, where did they get that number? <laughs> well, how could they get that number? But they did the math. Um, first, we know he inherited a fortune from his father, King David, who was a wealthy king and acquired an enormous fortune through war and conquest. And Solomon did not go that route. Uh, according to Scripture, Solomon was an extremely successful businessman. For one thing, he made deals that brought in 25 tons of gold every year for 40 years. So what kinds of deals are we talking about? Well, in, in that part of the world, it was common. I mean, we know Solomon controlled trade routes. That was the moneymaker. And that connected Africa to Mesopotamia. and other. In other words, Israel was a little country, but it was well-situated. And Solomon leveraged that advantage by trading goods and services and taking cuts on deals uh, between other parties and receiving tribute by smaller players, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, he was not a warrior like his father, King David. Uh, Solomon conducted his entire reign with no armed conflicts with anyone. And instead of fighting, he made deals. And he had peace on every side around him. Uh, you know, and peace generates wealth and not just for one person. A man of peace builds a prosperous society for himself and for everyone else around him, too. And um, he shared merchant ships with the Phoenicians and he famously negotiated for wood for construction with neighboring countries. It was just a win win. You know, Second Chronicles famously says that in those days, and I'm going to quote the text here. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar trees as abundant as sycamores, which are in the lowlands. And they brought horses to Solomon from Egypt and from all lands. Which is a good segue uh, to bring up another method of his for building alliances with other nations. That was through marriage. And Solomon made money in that way, too. I mean, Solomon famously had 300 wives and, and over 700 concubines. And what that did is that connected him politically um, as well as culturally with 
the whole world around him, and most famously with the daughter of Pharaoh, which you just referenced uh, with that verse about Egypt. And the Bible talks about his 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and his 12,000 horsemen. Um, it speaks of the thousands that comprised his forced labor force, which is essentially slavery. Uh, he enslaved basically almost everyone within his borders who wasn't Jewish because he did require so much forced labor to build enormous and glamorous buildings and even cities. And Solomon's temple to God was famous during his day, and it's still famous. It actually survived for hundreds of years before it was burned to the ground uh, by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And he spent seven years on that and another 13 years building his own palace. And we can only imagine how, you know, glamorous that was. Um, just his throne, which was made of ivory and overlaid with gold, was taken on, it's taken on legendary status in history. I mean, it's worth Googling an image of that. And he didn't just build inside Jerusalem. He built entire cities. And so, you know, there's a lot of wealth to add up, obviously. And uh, no one knows whether wealth.com is in the ballpark, <laughs> and the numbers are just too big. And uh, in fact, part of the criticism of the ancient sources in regard to Solomon lies in the fact that critics don't believe it's possible even to be that wealthy. You know, if the accounts are to be believed, he was, in fact, far richer than Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Carnegie or Rockefeller or anybody that we would think of now. And, uh, the Bible says his wealth was limitless. And that is the perspective that we see in Kohelet. He is speaking as a man who has built unquantifiable wealth, including that legendary harem of 1,000 women. <laughs> So here we are, you know, sacred texts of three religions agreeing uh, there is a man who has reached the pinnacle of achievement in these three areas of life. The, the true philosopher king, you know, should we believe it? And if we do, should we believe what Koheleth has to say about life? Is a perspective from that person worth knowing? Should we believe? You know, this question makes me think of a very influential man in my field uh, of rhetoric, a man by the name of Peter Elbow. Peter Elbow wrote a seminal scholarly piece claiming that if you want to know if a certain set of assertions are true, you should practice what he calls the believing game. And I love the believing game, and ever since I found out about it, I like to play it. It's counterintuitive. In other words, it, it doesn't seem like it would work, but it does work. Our culture, you know, even the way I teach school, our schooling teaches us to doubt everything. Uh, if, if we're taught that if we want to see if something true, we should play what he calls the doubting game. We should question it, find the holes, challenge the assertions. And that's what we do. At least most of us do. That's what I do. We, we spend our whole lives playing the doubting game. It's natural and we enjoy it and it makes us feel safe to believe only those things that have survived the doubting game. But Elbow says, although the doubting game is more comfortable, it's not only well, it's not the only way to arrive at truth, and maybe it's not even the best way to arrive at truth. He says we should play the believing game. <laughs> so how do we play the believing game? Well, I'm going to describe it, and it's going to sound easy at first pass, but it's actually really hard. The idea is that instead of doubting all assertions, Refrain from doubting, and then just for a period of time, believe. Believe all the assertions. And when you go through a series of assertions for argument's sake, believe them. Believe them in order to understand, to follow them, to give 
yourself an understanding of the the assertion, to commit to it, to project, to find the potential perceptions, to live the experiences that come from that perspective, get inside the idea, move around in it. He says it's exercising what he calls the believing muscle. It's not a negative testing. It's a positive one. Elbow argues that people who play regularly lit the believing game turn out to be people with better judgment and find more truth because they can believe more things than the rest of us. You know, it's a nice way to approach a lot of things, but it's specifically nice to approach ancient texts like that. It's a nice way to approach sacred texts. Just take it at face value, at least for a period of time. Go with it. Play the believing game and see where that takes you. Can I give a psychological equivalent? Oh, I guess you will. Yes. This is basically understanding the understanding of someone else. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it means, you know, dropping your worldview for a moment to step into their mind and how the, and how they uh, have processed. Yes, but he says take it a step farther. Don't understand their understanding. Assume the role. Be it. Be it. Right, say. because they believe yeah. it. Right. And then you're not saying, I'm going to understand your belief. I'm going to believe with you. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, you know, that's a great way to approach a complicated and ancient text uh, like Ecclesiastes or Kohelet. Uh, The writer of Kohelet is taking a very specific perspective, the perspective of the man who has it all. I mean, these are the words of a man who has accomplished pretty much everything there is to accomplish on planet Earth. These are his conclusions about the human experience as he approaches the end of life. And I want to point out, how much money do people spend on going to hear speakers talk about how to be successful? (laughs) Well, true. And that first pass, you know, it it, it does sound like he's down on life. You know, there's and that's where you get your comparisons with absurdism or existentialism. But in fact, those are not his conclusions. He does not agree with the final end of those arguments. His conclusions are also not cliches that you might hear from one of those seminars that you paid, you know, nineteen ninety nine and a free chicken dinner to, to listen to. <laughs> I don't know who you listened to for nineteen ninety five, but it must, that's a cheap break. That's true. You know, in fact, he makes claims that many of us will have never heard before. Koheleth breaks down the secrets to living a happy life, and if we follow his line of reasoning. He negotiates the contradictions in the human experience that we all live and we're frustrated by. For example, you know, those big questions like why do bad things happen to good people or even worse, why do good things happen to bad people? (laughs) Or how about this one? Why do I want stuff? But then as soon as I get it, I immediately don't care about it anymore. You know, so let's read the the first phrase, the very first famous phrase of this piece of writing. We're going to read it from the King James Version of the Bible, but then we're going to read it from the Orthodox Jewish Bible. And we'll see why, even if you play the believing game as best as we can, working with translated texts will always be tricky. I believe we've <laughs> laid that down in past episodes. It's about, true. You know. All right, so Ecclesiastes one one, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All right, so now let's take it from the Orthodox Jewish Bible. Divrei Koheleth ben David Melech in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Hevel Havalim, saith Koheleth, Hevel Havalim. All is Hevel. I know that wasn't perfect Hebrew, but... <laughs> uh, I was just going to say that's not English, but, you know, 
Go ahead. <laughs> well, I know. And I only read the book of Koheleth or Ecclesiastes from the Orthodox Jewish Bible. There are words that they keep in Hebrew. I point that out to bring up one of the interesting aspects of dealing with translated works. What do you do with words that don't have English equivalents? Sometimes translations aren't totally exact, but they try to get as close as they can to an English equivalent if they're translating in English. And a good example of that is that word Koheleth. Koheleth means speaker to the assembly. So the King James translators, they translated, oh, okay, that's a preacher. But those two words aren't actually identical. Speaking before an assembly, that's basically what preachers do. It's close enough. So we're not going to challenge that. The text reads, these are words spoken to the assembly from the perspective of the son of David from Jerusalem. He doesn't use the name Solomon, and and that's usually who we think the son of David, who is the king of Israel, is. So one way or the other, Koheleth has clearly communicated this is the intended perspective. We're okay. It's the next phrase, the phrase that I semi-butchered when I tried to read it, uh, (laughs) that introduces a word with no English translation. And problematically, the word in this assertion is the basis for the entire book. Hevel. The word Hevel is repeated 38 times in 12 chapters. The concept of Hevel is the central assumption that you have to agree with or nothing else makes sense in this book. Hevel doesn't have an English translation. So how do you understand a book that's based on a word we don't know? And that's where things get philosophical. So bear with me. Um, You know, I'm looking at the Catholic Bible right now, and it translates this verse the same way as the King James. Vanity of vanities, says Koheleth. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Um, The New International Version, which is what a lot of uh, Protestant denominations use. I mean, I notice it translates it as meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. (laughs) Yes. You know, when words or concepts don't have direct correlations, translators have to make interpretive decisions on what word to put. We talked about this when we were talking about Homer and the challenges of translating the Odyssey. That book or any translated book has this problem. It's inerrant. Translating involves interpretation because if a word has no direct correlation, you have to make choices. So let's look at the tra- at the translator's challenge in translating this word hevel. And here's the problem, the first problem. It's a metaphor. The word hevel means vapor. Well, why don't they translate it that way? I mean, you could. You could say vapor, vapor, all is vapor. But we can't be too hasty because Inherent in the word is more than one layer of meaning. It doesn't only mean vapor. So the Hebrews use, and this is why we know this, the Hebrews use the word hevel to mean other things in other contexts. You know, Koheleth uses the word more than any other Jewish writer, but even in the Bible, the word hevel is used in 35 other places outside of Ecclesiastes. So a good translator is going to look at all the ways and all the different contexts that the word is used. And then you're going to have to, and what most Bible translators have done is they've translated the word symbolically. Thus we get the words or the interpretations that you just read. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Um, I've seen the word futility, pointlessness, absurdity. The Jewish Orthodox Bible, they get it. They get off easy because their readers read Hebrew, so they can just stick with the word havel. But the rest of us are going to rely on, you know, someone's best translated word. (laughs) 
But, you know, that makes us ask, um, well, uh, what is Kohela trying to say? Because he pretty much calls everything vapor. Youth is a vapor. Wealth is a vapor. Wisdom is a vapor. Work is a vapor. I mean, it's all vapor, vaporous. And uh, we know that everything is, in fact, not literally meaningless or vain. So, you know, what's he really trying to say? That's the question. One answer would be, okay, this guy's depressed and he's venting. He's old, coming to the end, cuckoo. (laughs) But if we're playing the believing game and we're talking about the wisest man in the world and he's speaking publicly to an assembly, well, that's just too simple. And it certainly does not explain why a book would exist for 3,000 years. So we should do a little word study and, and better understand ourselves. What is the full picture of the nature of Hevel as Koheleth uses it? Because that will unlock a better understanding of his advice, the advice to a happy life, which is why people went to hear Solomon speak to begin with. Scholars tell us to call something Hevel or Vapel is to apply the characteristics of real vapor onto human experience. Now, let's think about that. Hevel means something more akin to what we think of in English as absurd in the way that Camus used the word absurd. It acts as a vapor. Now, life acts as a vapor in the sense that it is an affront to our perceived reason. What do I mean by that? If you think about it, there is no controlling where vapor goes. Once it gets out, it just goes wherever it wants. The person who releases the vapor into the atmosphere cannot control it. In other words, outcomes do not line up with a person's effort. Our effort and our expectations do not line up with our consequences. Consequences happen like a vapor. Some of it will go right, but not all of it will go right. Some will go in the intended direction, but not all of it. There's not a 100% guarantee. Havel, or vapor, also carries the idea of something that's temporary, something that's empty. Maybe it's even an illusion. Vapor is here for a second, and then it's just gone. Being vaporous, here's a third idea inherent in that word. It's dynamic. It cannot stop moving. It will not stay the same. Vapor is always in motion. So we have to understand Havel all of those ways. So we can see, and if we do think of it as Havel being all those things, there's no question, you know, the writer Koheleth is absolutely correct. Everything is Havel. Even Solomon is Havel. Everything in life is moving. Everything is changing all the time. Everything is temporary. Outcomes do not align with our expectations. At least they don't always. Uh, The human experience is indeed vaporous in every single way uh well sure i mean that's uh verifiable scientifically i mean uh quantum physics teaches us that everything is always moving you know ecology uh teaches us that that life runs in cycles um and interestingly enough though uh koheleth really obviously predates any of those modern understandings of the world Yes, he's the wisest man. You know, we agree with Koheleth today that rivers run into the sea and return again. That's the water cycle. We know that the wind whirls around continually and comes again on its circuit. That's from the text. We know that the sun rises and the sun goes down. We also know that this applies to us. 
There is no remembrance, and I'm quoting the text here. There is no remembrance of the former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things to come. In other words, nobody outside of this moment in time cares about this moment in time. And of course, if we read Camus or Kafka or any of the World War I writers, you know, that can be discouraging if you're sitting in a trench with mustard glass. There's some vapor. Mm. Yeah. We know we really don't care about the ancients who came before us. And we also know if we think about it that no one's going to care that we walk the face of the earth. But that's what the arrogance of present. That's what you're always talking about uh, on the podcast. You know, we live our lives upon the premise that ultimately we know more than the ancients because we've evolved. And we also know that people will look at us the same exact way. It's our human cycle. Of course, life is a vapor. (laughs) Uh, for sure. So I think it's easy to see that uh, most people, r- regardless of religious worldview, uh, will not have any problem w- really in agreeing with his first premise. Uh, human existence is hevel. It's frustrating, but we know the same fate comes to people that live well and to the scumbags of the earth. And, you know, uh, we see that all the time. And what's more difficult to reconcile is that it bothers us. I mean, why does unfairness bother us? And this is what Solomon calls Havel too. You know, theists believe that that is something that God puts inside us. We demand fairness. We're wired by God to believe in fairness. And theists believe that, well, at least Kaheleth is going to say, well, that's Havel too. Why are we wired to believe in reason and fairness? And it's just setting us up for disappointment. Why are we even wired to believe in cause and effect when that only works some of the time, but we're convinced that it works all of the time? We're wired to be governed by reason, but life is not reasonable. By its very nature, it's absurd. It's havel. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which we may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping at the wind. (laughs) You know, I find it interesting that he includes that phrase, um, grasping at the wind, in light of the Islamic tradition. You know, according to Islam, uh, Suleiman or Solomon has charge over the wind. And if we play the believing game, that makes that phrase stand out even more. I know. I mean, he uses the grasping at the wind line over and over again. He knows wind. Kohelet's credibility comes from the voice of experience. Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were here before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I mean, he says here, uh, you think you're being so smart, and it's great. It's great in many ways, but that doesn't mean it's everything. Actually, um, there's a correlation. He's stating that the more you know, the more you can be sad. Right. I mean, he says, I'm not saying wisdom is bad because it isn't bad. It's good. But it doesn't necessarily add to your happiness. You know, we start to see at this point, you know, with the verses that you just read, the direction that the book is going to go. 
he's not saying everything is havel and and so therefore we're left with this pointless belief that life is meaningless and not worth living he also isn't going to say wisdom wealth work pleasure all that will make you sad in the end. He's not saying that. In fact, he's going to say the opposite. This is good stuff, no question. But it's not unqualified for very specific reasons. Those things, even in conjunction with each other in endless quantities, are not enough. They're not enough to make you happy. Money isn't, sex isn't, partying isn't, the perfect career is not enough. And I'm telling you this because I've tried to satisfy this unsatiable quest as a playboy, as a king, as a business titan, as a political titan, I know those things are great. They are, but they're not enough. And no matter how much you have of them, those alone won't do it. There is something or some things that you must add to that equation. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which water to grow any trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants, and I had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. He goes on to say that, you know, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. You know, how many times does he repeat the first person pronoun there? I, my. It's repeated twice in every sentence. I did this for myself. I did this for myself. I did this for myself. I looked out for myself and all things, entertainment, accomplishments, women, all of it. The problem is I got frustrated because everything is Havel and there's no possible way around that. You cannot, no matter what you do, how you try, make life not Havel. It's not possible. He came to that conclusion. He says this. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. And he goes on and on about how transitory everything is, how fast life goes. And what's interesting about that is not that it's not true. I mean, we know that it's true, but how depressed it all makes him just thinking about it. It's frustrating. And the deeper of a thinker you are, the more frustrated and deeper you'll get if you think about that trans- transitory state of things. I think I've told the story before, but I, you know, I had that good friend in high school, Lohan, and he was my existential friend. And, and Lohan always just innately always thought everything was Havel and and it drove him to live a very reckless life. I would watch Lohan. We would go out uh, together with our little group of friends and he could smoke and would regularly smoke three cigarettes at a time. That's just one example because he did lots of crazy and self-destructive things. And I would say, Lohan, stop. And he had this famous line that he would tell all of us and he would say, why you die you're dead so what it was his catchphrase he said it just like that 
You know, and Koheleth kind of gets Lohan. Except we're only at the beginning of the book. These facts are not something he's going to dispute. He's just going to say that's not the end. Living life resigned to the depression because life is havel is not what the book of Ecclesiastes advocates. Koheleth will agree with Lohan. Yes, wisdom is temporary. Yes, wisdom can make you sad. Yes, pleasure can be pointless. Yes, wealth only goes so far. That's just a starting point. But it doesn't make any or all of those things evil because they are not. In fact, those very things can bring with them lots of happiness. They can actually even bring fulfillment. Everything that we've described as absurd and pointless can also be fulfilling. There's the contradiction. Right. <laughs> the duality. Uh, well, if you're not careful when you read all this, it does read that, that life is not worth living. And that is what's counterintuitive and different between um, what Kohela says and what nihilism teaches. And, uh, Havel is not the final word uh, for Kohelis or for Judaisms, for that matter. Uh, there's more. And, and in fact, even though all of those things are Havel, uh, we are still told to pursue them. And Kohelis advocates work, and Kohelis advocates success, and Kohelis advocates partying. Uh, you know, Judaism, unlike other faiths, does not believe in temperance. <laughs> Good for them. It doesn't believe in self-deprivation for the purpose of being spiritual at all. I mean, Koheleth reveals what makes life living will include wisdom and partying and work and all of it. It's just all qualified. Hence, yes, enter divinity. Except even God is a contradiction in Ecclesiastes. Uh, Koheleth is not going to just say, put God first and you'll be fine. That's not the message of Koheleth. In fact, not even God gets off the hook when it comes to Havel. According to Koheleth, God's ways are Havel, and that is the source of our frustration. The rules God created to rule our universe do not follow human reason and therefore are forever frustrating to the human experience. For example, why are humans wired to know without question in our hearts that life must be a series of cause and effects? And humans are wired to see all of life as a series of cause and effects. That's written somewhere in our makeup. But Koheleth reminds us and gives examples to show that God has designed life to be exactly not like that. Life is hovel. It's not logical. God has designed humans to be wired with this insatiable appetite. We just have them. We cannot get enough. We literally cannot. We are divinely, biologically wired to never be satisfied. Not with wealth, not with drink, not with food, not with power, not with anything that we enjoy. We literally cannot get enough. It is our human condition. Yet this insatiable yearning is from God, and that is Havel. You know, it kind of reminds me of, of the trick chemical companies have done with high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> no, I want that's a reach right there from God no, to high fructose no, corn syrup. No, because you know the chemical engineers, you know they they know that that this food they put high fructose corn syrup in it because it keeps us from ever being full from eating those foods. Well, that's the same concept here. We can never literally get satisfied. High fructose corn syrup, that's Havel. So can we uh, substitute the word high fructose corn syrup for Havel for the rest of the episode? <laughs> well, I don't know. Finally, let's look at this last one, uh, uh, the last way that God is Havel. 
We are wired with eternity in our hearts. That's what the text says. We are wired with eternity in our hearts. Uh, other artists have said, we crave to be forever young. <laughs> and, w- and we are. We are wired to want immortality. And we build. We build everything in our lives in this insatiable pursuit of immortality. That r- ultimately is what collecting power, money, women, popularity, building buildings, isn't that what it's all about? We are wired by God to crave eternity. And yet, all is havel, a vapor. We cannot. We just cannot be immortal. Uh, And we've told everyone that this book is not dark. (laughs) Well, I guess there's a bit of darkness inherent in the idea of Havel, but that is not the end of the matter because Judaism is not a religion of sadness. In fact, I bet you didn't know this. There is not a Hebrew word for tragedy. Well, I mean, there is now, but the Hebrew word from tragedy, they borrowed it from the Greeks. The Greeks are the tragic ones. But Judaism is not a religion of tragedy. Judaism, you know, Christianity is like this too. Uh, Judaism is a a religion of hope. But don't think we're going to hear Koheleth say that you have to wait for the afterlife to find satisfaction. The end of the matter is not wait until death and then you'll be happy. Koheleth is not concerned about heaven. Koheleth is concerned with what happens, as he says, and I quote, under the sun. And that's why this book can be enjoyed no matter your position on the afterlife. The human experience is our shared experience, regardless of our understanding of what happens next. And Koheleth wants to tell us that it can be good. Your human experience can be happy. It can have fulfillment here and now. And yes, it is about your work. It is about pleasure and and your fun social activities. It is about wealth. It's about all of those things that we already know are good in this world. And the rest of the book explores how to make those things work. Well, this was way more deeply philosophical than I thought it would be at the beginning. Uh, It's gone pretty deep. And, you know, that's after we've covered Camus and and others philosophically. So, you know, and there it is. uh, Our introduction to the great wisdom literature of the Hebrews from a prophet revered by all three monotheistic religions. And uh, I hope you played the believing game with us today and enjoyed the experience if you did. As always, please remember uh, to like our episode on your device, follow or subscribe on our channel or podcast app. Visit us on our social media or go to howtolovelitpodcast.com. But most importantly, please share about us to your friends on social media, on text, on whatever you do. With things you enjoy, it's when you share that we grow. And as they say in Hebrew, Shalom. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.